Good morning, let's begin. My name's Peter Gettler. It's my honor and privilege to be president and CEO of the Cato Institute. And it's my great pleasure this morning to welcome all of you here to Cato, and especially those uh, who are viewing online, which I think is, uh, I think we, the weather, the wind and water has caused a lot of people to opt uh, for viewing online rather than being with us, although, although you hearty souls have made it, so thanks. Um, you know, in these times of bitter partisanship and tribalism, one of the things I've observed is that the reason, facts, and analysis that ought to be the foundations of our public policy discourse are, uh, are notably absent because the, uh, when the heat of partisanship takes over, each side drives its policy proposals more on the basis of group identity and what they're supposed to believe, which oddly enough is often the opposite of what the other side believes. At Cato, we view one of our indispensable roles to always ensure that we're injecting into the policy debates, ideas, analysis, and, uh, and research that uh, is based on reason, facts, and analysis, and is principled, that conforms with our cornerstone values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. I don't think there's a policy area where what I've just described is, uh, is more obvious than in the realm of the immigration debate, where I think that uh, it's safe to say, or at least my observation is that each side seems to believe what it wants to believe and doesn't want to get let facts get in the way. And uh, our immigration team led by Alex Narasta, uh, one of our supporters said to me a few months ago, we were in conversation, said, boy, you guys are really the thought leaders in the immigration debate. And uh, I took that as a compliment. I think it's something that uh, is, uh, is a fair, fair point to make. Um, Alex and his team have done a fantastic job issuing groundbreaking research uh, to show that uh, misconceptions about immigrant, uh, immigrants resorting to public assistance or the threat to our security that immigrants represent or the crime that is uh, attributable to immigrants that the, uh, the facts don't comport with some of the rhetoric. And we view our function as to not just produce the research that uh, you know, shows what the true picture is, but also to generate ideas, common sense ideas, that can hopefully bridge the gap and move public policy forward in a positive direction. And one of the ideas that we have championed for some time that also is consistent with our view that federalism uh, was a system given to us by the framers that, that works pretty well if only we would let it, but is the idea for state-based visas to let states have much more of a say in how many immigrants they uh, allow to enter their state, what types of, of skills, what types of workers they're, they're looking for, and I'm so pleased this morning to have two champions of that concept uh, with us, Congressman John Curtis, who represents the third congressional district of, of Utah, and Governor Gary Herbert, who I believe is the longest serving governor in the, uh, in the country, although that, uh, that tenure is going to be coming to an end uh, when the new year turns in, in 2021. Uh, Utah was the first state uh, in a, a bill, that, a law that was signed by Governor Herbert to uh, establish a, uh, a guest, state-based guest worker visa program, uh, the operation of which was unfortunately scuttled by the, by the lack of uh, complementary uh, legislation at the federal level. But such legislation has actually been, uh, been introduced uh, three months ago by, uh, by Congressman Curtis. Uh, before I hand the floor to, uh, to Governor Curtis, I would like to say that um, I think one of the reasons that I assume Utahns understand the immigration, uh, or to Congressman Curtis, did I say go ahead? Sorry. I wasn't making any forecasts. <laughs> no predictions. Um, you know, one of the reasons that um, 
I think Utah maybe understands this issue uh, better than a lot of states is the, uh, I think, 2.3% unemployment rate that, uh, that Governor Herbert has, has uh, presided over. Um, and uh, I would like to turn the floor over opening remarks uh, for Congressman Curtis. And uh, in introducing him, he spent uh, 2009 to 2017 as the mayor of Provo, uh, during which time I think spending by the government of Provo declined by 8%. So that's something that we would love to see replicated uh, here at a federal federal level. So we wish you uh, very very uh, best wishes on uh, on that project. Uh, but please join me in welcoming Congressman John Curtis. Well, I am I'm delighted. I'm honored uh, to be here. Um, so much respect uh, for the institute and uh, the work that they do. Um, I want to start by uh, sharing with you a, an experience that I have approximately annually. Uh, it's happened three times since I've been in Congress, and that is that I go to my personal email. I open up that email, and there's a constituent that has figured out my personal email, and um, there is their email to me. And I know because I read the first one exactly what the second and the third ones are going to say. And, and that is a plea, um, a struggle of a small business owner in Utah trying to make it. And I, I brought uh, that uh, email with you, and it's long, but let me just share a, a couple of, of the, uh, her words uh, in this email. My husband and I own a landscape business. We rely on temporary labor to fill our needs for the summer lawn care maintenance. She goes on to explain a little bit about their business. We started our business in April 2002 and have worked hard to provide livings for our employees and services for our customers. We have not been able to secure any visas for this upcoming season of work. We don't know what we're going to do without any employees. We don't know what to tell our customers. As of this week, I have five new customers calling, wanting us to do work for them as soon as the weather breaks. We don't know if we'll get any employees. If we bid the work and we don't have employees, then we're putting our business and our reputation and livelihood at stake. If we don't accept the work and then we do get employees, we won't have enough work to keep everyone employed. This is a fine line that we are walking. Now, if you've been a small business owner and you read between the lines here, you see somebody worried about the viability of their business. You see somebody worried about literally losing their business that supports them and, and, and others. I think one of the things that's notable is, is she ends by saying, we continue to have an ad for employees posted with Utah Workforce Services. We have not had a single applicant since the ad was posted several weeks ago. Now imagine being a small business owner with this problem and knowing that there is a pool of talented, hardworking, law-abiding, tax-paying people who would die to have one of their jobs and work hard uh, for them. Can you imagine their frustration? Well, if I could take you on a little tour of my district, um, I'd start you up in Midway at a dairy farm that could tell the exact same story. We would, of course, stop at the ski resorts, and some of you would join me uh, for skiing, but they would all tell you the struggle that they have uh, with employees in the hospitality uh, industry. Uh, Silicon Slopes is a part of my district. If you haven't heard about Silicon Slopes, it's a happening high-tech place that is on fire uh, with innovation and with creativity. But the first thing they would tell you as you walked in the door is, we cannot find the, the help that we need. Rural Utah uh, is, is struggling in trying to find the help. Utah County, where I live, an excavator has equipment for two more crews, but that equipment stands idle, uh, not being used. Well, we know the federal government has stewardship for the immigration policy. And sadly, as a representative of the federal government, I must admit, we have failed, and, and not just a little bit, in, in this stewardship. And in many ways, this, this failure is predictable. Imagine being 2,000 miles away uh, from the state of Utah and trying to understand their needs and, and how to meet those needs and those, the, the, the specific nuances of their needs. Imagine the differences between Hawaii and Utah. They need surfers, we need skiers, <laughs> right? Imagine a one-size-fits-all policy that, that spreads across the United States. Each state has unique industries, employment opportunities, and our current immigration system doesn't fully recognize those differences. 
As a former mayor, I know firsthand the government closest to the people governs the very best. As a matter of fact, the governor and I would have a smile because when I was mayor, I used to lobby him and the state legislature. And you know what I would say to them? Leave us alone. We've got this. We can handle this. And we hear our state screaming today, uh, leave us alone. We can handle this. We've got this. You'll hear from a moment uh, from, from one of the greatest governors of the greatest states uh, in the union. And he's, he's telling us, I've got this. And we need to give him the tools to do that. My state-sponsored state Visa Pilot Program Act grants states the flexibility to tailor a visa program based on their industries and their needs. It will create an additional tool to connect workers and industries that are most in need and allow visa holders flexibility to move throughout the state as employment opportunities and demands shift. In the winter, we need help with the ski industries. In the summer, we need help in agriculture. Sitting here today with me is the governor of the great state of Utah, recognized as one of the best managed states in the United States. Let's give him the tools to do his job. There's no quick fix to our immigration system, but I'm excited to be proposing real common sense solutions to address the problems. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here with you today. And now please join me in welcoming Governor Herbert to the podium where he'll deliver an opening statement as well. Thank you. Well, thank you, Peter. Uh, I am honored to be here with all of you. And Alex, thank you for your work. And uh, it's always great to be with Congressman Curtis, who's doing a great job bringing what I would consider a little more common sense to the opportunity to discuss issues. Sometimes we forget the common sense aspect because we've become, in my view, just a little bit too partisan. Immigration is a perfect example of that issue. We've talked a lot about the wall. We've talked a lot about the fence, however you want to secure the borders, which most everybody agrees with. But we've weaponized it as far as a political tool against the opposition. And what happens is we then don't solve the problem. We use it for political purposes, and the, and, the, and the problem is not solved. It just continues on and maybe even becomes more exacerbated. I would suggest to you that we need to talk less about the wall and more about the gate, how people come in and out of this country. I was raised with migrant farm workers in my hometown in Utah Valley, uh, good friends of mine, they would come, work in the farms, work in the agriculture, fruit, a uh, place where I was at and lived and raised, had a lot of fruit farms. I helped pick fruit myself. And the migrant farm workers would come, spend a few months uh, making money. They came because they made more money here than they made at their home, a lot of them from Mexico. And then they would go home, and they'd come back the next season. Uh, now, because they don't think they can stay and come back and, and forth, they stay and overstay visas, you know, hop the fence. Again, looking for a better life. We understand the motivation. And so there ought to be, in fact, a better way, in fact, to appreciate, uh, to do, deal with this. Uh, Cato, um, I appreciate the fact that you guys are weighing into this issue. I appreciate the fact that you've been weighing in on issues for a long time. Uh, whether it be uh, regulation reform, which we certainly need of, tax reform, school choice, free market capitalism, which we're somehow forgetting. That's what's made America great. That's what's lifted people out of poverty. Those very significantly important issues that need to have a discussion and debate and make sure that we understand uh, the founding fathers' wishes under the Constitution. And so I appreciate the good work, and I appreciate, again, Congressman Curtis and his work let me mention a couple of things. Uh, Peter mentioned federalism, the concept of federalism. Uh, I'm not sure that everybody understands what that means. It sounds like we're talking about federal government, federalism, and yet the concept of federalism is the partnership between the states and the federal government, and a co-equal basis. And, and I would remind everybody, and one of my favorite uh, paper, the Federalist Papers is Federalist 45, where James Madison trying to, to get ratification of this new constitution 
and the states had pretty well uh, had kind of very much uniqueness and autonomy. Uh, they could do basically what they wanted to. Uh, they didn't have the same currency. Washington couldn't pay for the troops from the war. Uh, the commerce laws were different. So the need to have a stronger uh, federal government. But the states were worried. And so Federalist 45 was written. If you have not read it, it ought to be on your nightstand because it tells us the relationship that we have states and the federal government. And the phrase that James Madison used was, the powers we've given to the federal government, states, we, we've got them in a box. Don't worry. We're not going to take away your authority. The powers we've given to the federal government are few and defined. Few and defined. Article 1, Section 8, the enumerated powers of the federal government. They said the powers we've given to the states are numerous and indefinite. Kind of mirroring our Tenth Amendment. Here's an interesting factoid that I've passed when I was chairman of the National Governors Association for all governors to ponder and say, let's see what's happened since James Madison. If you totaled up all the money being spent by the respective 50 states now, not 13, the 50 states, our budgets total up to be about $1.7 trillion, not an insignificant amount of money. But the federal government now is spending over $4.1, $4.2 trillion, two and a half times more money spent in the federal government where their powers are few and defined as opposed to the states which are numerous and indefinite. I'm sure James Madison is saying, hey, I left instructions. What happened? What, 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 what's uh, happened in my absence? We all ought to ask that question. Two overall points I would like to just make mention in my minute here. One, um, the principle of federalism would solve a lot of problems. Why do we have this top-down mentality when it ought to be more of a bottom-up? Mayor of Provo, again, he has programs and ideas that maybe are unique to the city of Provo, maybe not to other 245 cities of Utah. I was a county commissioner, a local government official too. My county was called Utah County. We have needs and desires and programs which were unique to our area. We don't need the, the, the federal government particularly, and even with the legislature, we're a little concerned about the mandates and dictates that come down from on high. We all probably appreciate more of a bottom-up grassroots approach to developing policy, and clearly the, the, the idea of federalism, which allows us to have these laboratories of democracy, Judge Brandeis talked about, Libraries of democracy, all out there. And if one succeeds, then we all can learn. If one fails, it doesn't drag the whole uh, republic down. So the concept of federalism, let states be little pilot programs experimenting, trying to do things, is one that we ought to adhere to and revere. And states need, in fact, assert more their rights and authority under the Constitution. We've, we've let too much power go here to Washington, D.C. Secondly, um, uh, clearly, uh, the uniqueness of the states includes their unemployment, their labor force. We have now a 2.3% unemployment rate, the lowest on record in the state of Utah in our history. We are the lowest in the nation now. Our job growth creation in the private sector over the last decade has been nearly 37%. That's uh, the average, so sometimes higher, sometimes lower, but on average, 3.7% per year. The second closest state to us is at 26%. They're not even in our rearview mirror. We've had significant success economically. And consequently, as you've heard the congressman talk about, we have shortages of labor. Now we're bringing people in from around the country, but even then we have shortages of labor. And there are people who would like to come to this country and say, we have the skills and the desire to work that you're looking for, but we can't get in. And so that's the purpose, I think, of the, the uh, uh, legislation that Congressman is trying to, to promote here is to see, is there not some way that we can, in fact, ad address these shortages of labor issues? And um, I think what we want to do is make sure that we have the ability to empower the private sector in a free market. Uh, that means we want to, in fact, have people that uh, uh, have the skills, education, training necessary for what I call alignment with the marketplace. What we do in Utah and what we do in other states are probably not the same. So we ought to be able to say, you know, we, we have need, pick a number, 10,000 laborers in high tech, or we need an agriculture. 
Uh, maybe we need uh, uh, issues. We have apprentice programs, for example, and internships and trying to have the, the pipeline issues taken care of for people that are shorthanded in aerospace or life sciences, uh, you know, manufacturing, banking, finance. If we have those areas where we have shortages, why would we not want to say, let's see if we can't bring people in that we need. The federal government's going to have control over the ultimate uh, uh, numbers and uh, the issue of bringing them in. But let the states say, you know, we could use 5,000 of this or 5,000 of that or 2,000 of this and see if we could not help to augment the demands of the marketplace and have a growing healthy economy. It really becomes kind of the win-win situation, which we all ought to be looking for. And I think that's probably the essence of, of the, this piece of legislation. Uh, I'll just conclude by saying this. We have 50 wonderful states and five great territories. Uh, we've tried to come up in our past with an individualized uh, immigration reform in a, that is unique to Utah. We tried to do it because we thought the, you know, the system is broken, it's not being worked, and nobody seems to be willing to take it on and fix it for the same political purposes that I mentioned earlier. We were challenged in court by the federal government, and we lost. So we know that the federal government has the responsibility on immigration. It's not a state issue. So of the few and defined, this is one of them. We're just saying that what we have now is not working. Uh, giving more flexibility to the states under the guise and under the responsibility of, of uh, securing our borders is a, an important aspect of it. And we need to concentrate more on the gate, how people come in, how they stay, how they go back home, which a lot of people would like to come and go. They want to contribute and go back to their home country. We can come up with a better system, and I appreciate Congressman Curtis and his presentation of this new piece of legislation that may be one way that we can come together and find a more common sense solution to the immigration problem. So thank you very much. Congressman Curtis, uh, why do you think the state should have, you know, more power, more determination in this arena? Uh, are you somehow implying that the federal government is not doing a good job? <laughs> um, Alex, uh, you know, I think uh, just the response from the crowd answers that question. Um, this is one the federal government is really struggling with. And uh, good people on both sides of the aisle are really struggling with this. I think one of my biggest disappointments since coming to Congress um, is our inability to move anything forward, even the very smallest things uh, we have been unable to move forward in, in the arena of immigration. And, and at the same time, we have states ready to go to work, ready to take this ball and, um, and prove uh, that they can be part of the solution. And the governor, governor was very eloquent in his description of whose responsibility this actually is. That doesn't mean they can't help, right? And, and they're ready to go to work. And, and the beautiful thing about this program is it doesn't force it on any state, right? On, only those that want, want to do it. And I believe strongly that given the opportunity, they will prove that they can be an integral part of the solution and help the federal government with our responsibilities. So what do your colleagues in the House think about this? I know it's been busy for the last three months yeah. uh, <laughs> up there, but uh, have you gotten any feedback from people up there? Any um, you know, co-sponsors, potential people interested, maybe Republicans, Democrats? What, what's been the atmosphere about so, this? So let me first of all mention that if you listen carefully uh, to some of the presidential candidates, you'll, you'll hear themes of this. Uh, uh, Joe Biden and, and uh, Mayor Pete, you'll, th you'll hear themes of this, and that gives me hope that the other side will support this. Um, the discussion on the floor is, is fantastic. Yesterday, I took the opportunity. We're, we're working hard to select the, the right co-sponsor and have that be a Democrat of this bill. And I grabbed a couple of them aside yesterday and explained the bill to them, and they said, you bet we want to have that discussion. And we're really hopeful um, that we'll, we're able to build the right kind of support that will put the momentum behind this that will help us move this forward. Now, uh, Governor Herbert, you're Republican governor of a conservative state. Uh, you face, undoubtedly, a lot of pressure on immigration. You hear about it frequently uh, from the constituents. You recently told uh, the State Department um, that Utah would love to continue to accept refugees. I believe you were the first Republican governor out there to say, keep sending them 
uh, to Utah. In 2011, you mentioned, state legislature introduced a state-based visa bill and you signed it, um, which was the first time I ever heard about it. So if I'm a thought leader. You guys put the thought in, in, into my head. Um, <laughs> so why is being so pro-immigration as you are and as you have been, why is that such an important policy for your state and for you? Well, I, I would say it this way. We're pro-common sense. <laughs> you know, there's so a lack of that, uh, you know, around in politics. And uh, recognizing some of the uniqueness of immigration and, and refugees. And, and they get lumped together. They're not the same. We are a state that was founded by refugees, people fleeing persecution for their religious beliefs. So we probably have in our culture an understanding and an empathy for those who are fleeing terror. Refugees have been vetted for nearly two years, if not longer, and, uh, and they're here in our country legally. And so it is a little different situation. And so when the, the, I appreciate the, the president saying, well, we're gonna let states have more to say, whether they take them or not, uh, whether that's constitutional or not is a question. But uh, again, the idea, uh, I, th I thought, well, uh, I just want you to know that Utah is willing to take our fair share. We have about 65 to 75,000 refugees. We have a refugee uh, training center where they come to. They've been vetted for two years by the FBI. They come here, we vet them through the State Bureau of Investigation, uh, understand their background. We take them, we teach them English. Uh, we, in fact, give them schooling and education so they have skills and training. And then we find jobs. And they are a big part of our fabric, very uh, much contributing to our society in a very positive way. Uh, same with, uh, with immigration. Again, there's a right way to come into the country in a wrong way. Uh, but again, the, the pent-up demand of there's opportunity there is frustrating both sides of the, of the border. We'd like to come and we can't get in and we need them on the other side. There's things we could do uh, with our employers to make sure that uh, they're not doing things inappropriately or illegally. Uh, and I, again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have to work on the gate Nobody talks about the gate, how people come into the country, and that's where a lot of the frustration could be resolved. If we had a rational, common sense way for people to come into our country, work with appropriate visas, go back home to their country, uh, and uh, contribute uh, both ways. And that's mostly just a common sense issue, and that's what we champion in Utah. We're just kind of common sense people. Do you have any other advice for governors in other states, Republicans, Democrats, who are thinking about this topic, who are thinking about broaching it on the state level that you could give them uh, to help them sort of just go forward with this? Well, I think each state has its own little flavor of how they address it. And I appreciate uh, the president trying to give more flexibility to the states. I applaud that. I think that's a good concept, a good principle. Uh, but. I was with President Obama once and, and uh, we were talking about immigration and I said the same thing I've said basically here today. And Utah's unique uh, uh, desire to kind of have a, a way that we can accommodate in migration in a rational way that's appropriate and follows the law. And I said, we had a good proposal and we, we presented it and you sued us. You sued us, and, and we were talking about, so the reason we don't have it in Utah is because of the federal <coughs> government, you in particular, suing the state of Utah. And he said, yeah, I know that. And, and, I, and I said, now you're trying to do it by executive order. And we're suing you. Because <laughs> you're taking too much authority into the executive that you don't have the right to under the Constitution. And then he said, yeah, it's the Congress. So we can't get them to do anything. <laughs> and... Uh, Unfortunately, that's some truth. I mean, you think from the days of Ronald Reagan, when we gave amnesty, and that's no more, uh, from those days, I mean, how many years ago has that been? And we're still kicking the can down the road. That seems silly to me. So again, states can lead. We ought to be uh, the voice of reason. We ought to en en encourage our co congressional delegations to address the issues, their responsibility under the law. And let's not continue to just politicize the issue and find a solution. Wouldn't that be nice? Governors and, and states are used to finding solutions. That's what we have to do. And, and, and so 
We need to motivate our congressional delegation so that they're all like Congressman Curtis to find a solution to this problem rather than kick the can down the road for another 30 years. So have you thought or has there been many discussions on the state level? What types of workers specifically? Like you said, you know, every state is different. Um, I've had discussions with people in California and Texas about this, and they give me you know, wildly different answers. In California, I hear about farm workers and tech entrepreneurs. In Texas, I hear about oil rig workers. Um, they follow your lead a little bit on trying to introduce bills like this, but they haven't passed. What do you envision? Let's say, let's say you are governor for another eight years. Let's say this just happens. <laughs> I, I know uh, some of us would be happy about that, uh, but let's <laughs> just say this happens and um, Congressman Curtis's bill becomes law. What do you think the priority should be, or what would you advise? Well, you've explained the, and illustrated the point, and that is that every state's different. Utah is in a unique position right now. We have the healthiest, most diverse economy in America. Uh, the Hatchman Index, which measures diversification, uh, as a, you have an economy that reflects America. Uh, if you're in North Dakota, mostly all energy all the time, their Hatchman Index is 46. Texas, which has created as many jobs as any state in America, their Hatchman Index on diversification is 76. Utah's is 96.7. We're by far the most diverse economy. So we have shortages in more areas, uh, whether it be Silicon Slopes, as Congressman mentioned, uh, with technology, uh, some of our life sciences, medical device, uh, aerospace, the agricultural workers. We have need for all of those. We just have shortages in all those areas. It might not be the same in Oklahoma. It might not be the same in Texas. But each state ought to have the ability to say, here's where we have a need. Maybe you don't have a need at all. So you don't need to worry about it. But for those that have a need like a Utah, and those that the economy is so robust that there is really no labor. I have more jobs by about a third, more jobs than have people looking for jobs. That gap, that shortage is real. And we have then, like the landscape company says, we can't even do the work. We haven't any, any labor. So this is one way. It's not necessarily the way or the only way, but it is a way where we can help solve that gap of labor shortage. I, I actually predict that when we pass this bill, the governor's biggest problem is going to be this. His door will be pounded down by all these different industries, right? Saying, we need them, we need them. And I think that's going to be a problem, right? But it's a good problem to have um, that, that we wish on you. Just think about it. Just, just one area around the country, computer science. We just added a computer science class in our education because you need to have skills all line up with the demands of the marketplace. That's education. And sometimes our alignment is not something we've been doing well in this country and preparing our young people for jobs of, uh, of tomorrow. And it's a global economy. It's not, we're not isolated to America or Near Mountain West or Utah. It's global in nature. And we have, you know, 1.3 uh, Chinese out there that I tell our young people, they all want your jobs. So you've got to be able to compete. So skills and education is a key issue. Uh, so what we do right now to train people, uh, whether it be in computer science, 500,000 job openings in this country today that need computer science uh, education. We're graduating 50,000. 50,000, we have a, so the shortage, I mean, that's just illustrates the point. 450,000 short of labor that we need to fill jobs in the marketplace today. And it just seems so much better to be able to solve this in your office, people banging on your door, than people coming up here banging on your door. I've, I've worked on this topic since about 2007. And one of the sort of moments that were most illuminating to me, I'm a libertarian, I don't believe that the government can pick and choose winners and losers. But there was a point in the 2013 immigration reform bill where people were arguing about, well, should we have 40,000 construction workers or 45,000 nationally. And uh, part of me wants to walk out of those meetings and sort of uh, scream, uh, you know, in private, why not 45,411? Like, what's the magic number um, to, to, to do this? So from my perspective, rational self-interest, I'd love it if these arguments happened on the state level. Well, it's closer to the people, and it's more reflective of what the market demands are. I mean, that's, it is hard to have somebody here in Washington, D.C. in the back room say, ah, 
I've got the answer to that question. So, uh, so bottom up, again, closer to people is, is really a good concept and a good principle. Let me just add though, I'm not for open borders. I'm not saying that we just have people come and go uh, without some kind of check. And uh, so I, I do believe a country needs to secure its borders. The, the, that's what the courts have told us. The federal government has that responsibility, but we can make it so it, it, it is more reflective of what the market demands are, which is as a free market capitalist I am, that would be more near uh, to what we need to have I think, as a, as a country. I would wager that the governor could give you the first and last name of every company that I referred to uh, in my speech, right, and, and, and dozens more and hundreds more in the state legislature. Th these are people who have walked on those farms, who have been in those buildings, who have skied on those slopes, who have stayed in those hotels, and uh, their ability to, to navigate where those goes is, is, is so high because they're intimately familiar with who those people are. Now, Congressman, you used to be the mayor of Provo, big city in Utah. Be best job in the world, even better than governor. <laughs> <laughs> better than being in Congress? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. By no small measure. <laughs> so I, I, I imagine part of the motivation for this must be that communities like Provo will have just a much bigger say, right? We talk about employers, we talk about economic side of this, but the community itself, do you think that there's a, a role for this, for, for the, the locals? Well, absolutely. Like and, and I mentioned, you know, this email that I referred to, this good lady, I'll run into her at the grocery store, I'll see her on the streets. And, and one of the things that I would add to this conversation is accountability. Mm. Imagine trying to hold me accountable uh, for the fact that, that you're not getting the right types of workers. You can do it, but it's difficult, right? But, but holding a governor, holding a state legislator uh, accountable is so much easier. And that's one of the principles that makes local government better government is they see them in the grocery store, they see them at the schools, see them at the parks. And that accountability is, is, is a hundredfold. So uh, to move towards sort of, a, sort of an ethical view of this, you both are members of the Latter-day, uh, a Church of Latter-day Saints. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day yeah, Saints. Sorry, uh, you're both Mormons. <laughs> um, and the history the extermination order, particularly, I think um, it's indisputed that the religious discrimination historically in the past against Mormons in the United States is the greatest of any faith that has been endured. Um, and it informs, I think, the character and the behavior that I admire so much about Mormons today um, in the United States. I was struck when in the Winter Olympics, uh, when they were held in Utah. Usually they have to ship in translators from all over the world. They didn't have to ship in anybody. <laughs> we speak 130 languages in Utah. Yeah, how much historically for the experiences because of the, the shape, the importance of faith in Utah, how much do you think this plays a role in shaping your worldview and your view of this issue? Well, it's certainly part of the culture of Utah. Uh, just so people know, the extermination order, when they were being driven out of the east and, and uh, trying to find a place of refuge, uh, the extermination order allowed uh, you to be, if you're a Mormon, to be shot, killed. If you don't leave, we'll shoot you, and they, and they can do that with impunity. So Brigham Young and that early band went to the Utah Territory, came in into Salt Lake Valley, and it was pretty inhospitable. Mm. And, uh, but they decided, you know, hey, we have refuge here. We have a place of solitude. We can worship as we please. And they took a scripture out of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, said, we'll make the desert blossom as a rose. And they worked together and they did something pretty remarkable. Captured the snow melt in the mountains, created reservoirs, irrigation, born ditches, canals. And that's kind of a metaphor for Utah's continued to blossom today. And so that culture of hard work, of cooperation, U.S. Chamber of Commerce named us the number one enterprising state in America, had 50 different metrics that they measured. But in their introduction, they said, we found the spirit of collaboration and cooperation was in greater abundance in Utah than any state in America. That's part of the culture, that's what we've inherited. My ancestors, I'm a sixth generation Utah. And so that's part of what permeates. But it's not just the Mormons. It's people that come to Utah, 
that like the values and the traditions that we have there. Uh, Mormons only comprise now about 60%. At one time we were 98%. So we get more diverse all the time. Uh, we have people that come there that like the lifestyle. We have a great quality of life and their job opportunities. We have beautiful landscapes that diversified. And so there's a, w the last decade, we were the fastest growing state in America. So uh, there, there's a lot of things that go into your uh, culture uh, of a state or of a region. And uh, because of our past history and our willing to work and collaborate and be good neighbors, Utah's the number one state in the nation for volunteerism. Utah's the number one state in America for charitable giving. Uh, we're the most optimistic by Gallup polls. Uh, so we have some characteristics that are kind of unique to Utah, not hopefully unique uh, totally, but we have it in abundance. And that means we're probably a little more empathetic for those who have come from hard times looking for a better way of life. We're, we're just a lot more compassionate in that regard. I had the opportunity to be the mayor of the city that was the highest in those categories of charitable getting in the state that was the highest. <laughs> and I w there's a million stories I could tell you, but let me boil it down just to one to, to give you the f a flavor and reinforce what the governor is saying. Uh, a year and a half ago, we had one of the most devastating uh, fires in, in my county's history, uh, burned a tremendous amount and came down the, the ridge line and a, a number of homes were evacuated. And so as the Red Cross always does, they came in and set up and they were trying to match homeless people without homes with, with homes. They packed up and left. And they said to me, there are more people coming in our doors offering a home than people coming in our doors seeking a home. That is the culture that the, the governor is referring to of taking care of people in need. And so I think when Utahns hear of, of people um, outside our borders who are struggling, who and, 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 and the governor pointed out immigration and and refugees are different. Refugees are fleeing for their lives, you know, for fear of their lives. And I think when, when Utahns hear that, they're, they're gonna open up their doors and say, how can we help? So there are a couple features in your bill that are very interesting. You've described, I think, states being involved in selecting migrants, the federal government lending them in and vetting them. Uh, but there's also some enforcement features of this. You know, it, it, it cuts the numbers. Um, do you think that's important for that's important for buy-in, right? I mean, and, and just important for the viability of the system. Absolutely, there are tough numbers. This is this is a hard program. Uh, you, you you must get approved by the federal government, and you must maintain a ninety-seven percent compliance uh, with this. And uh, think about that. That that means a hundred people come in. You know where a hundred of those are, and if you don't know where ninety-seven of those are, you get dinged. Um, and what they're doing, and who they're working for, and are they obeying the laws? And are they being productive and, and doing all the things uh, that we predict that they will do? And I think it's important, not just for buy-in, but I think it's important for the viability of the program. Uh, I'm, I'm quite confident that this program will prove we should expand it and, and do more based on the states. And that can only happen if the states uh, meet very tough standards. Yeah, and if it drops below 97, numbers are cut. That's right. And you have to put in effect bonds, mandatory bonds. And if it happens three years in a row, you're out of the program for five years. Yeah, and that, that shows how much confidence I have in the states. They can do this. Absolutely, and then what I like is it's not just a stick approach, of course, there's also a nice carrot, right? If they follow the program, if they abide by the rules, if there's enforcement, then the numbers go 10%. 10% per year if the enforcement goes up. So, I mean, I, it's, it's, I think, a problem here in DC, right? We focus so much on just the stick. But what I love about this is you also have a nice carrot. So that there's a reason for states to enforce these rules. Absolutely. And most, what I what most, I love most people would call that common sense. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a theme here, isn't there, yeah. Governor? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm sure you noticed there was a cloud over this city when you landed here, and it's uh, not a cloud comprised of droplets of common sense. <laughs> <laughs> More the opposite. One of the things I notice about Utah, and I go out there about once a year for work, uh, usually uh, Utah State University up in Logan, and this is unfair of me, probably. But, and there's a compliment coming, uh, but I like to judge a state's governance by how well-maintained the freeways are. So I, I'm from LA, in Los Angeles and California, and there's like a bunch of weeds on the side of the roads, they're growing up on the concrete dividers and the freeway, sometimes they're like 12 feet tall, they look like trees. 
Uh, the roads trash. are cracked, trash everywhere. I drove to Logan from Salt Lake, and I noticed about halfway, I'm like, boy, I haven't seen a single weed growing out of this divider. I haven't seen any trash on the side of the road. Um, if that is an indication of how you all are gonna run a state-based visa program, I can't think of any worries or complaints that somebody might have, would you? Do you? <laughs> well, I, I don't wanna give the impression that Utah is perfect. Uh, close. <laughs> but uh, we're on the right road going in the right direction, and we certainly have a room for improvement. Um, we are pretty wise in how we use the taxpayers' dollars. Um, we are one of only 12 states in America that have a AAA bond rating from the rating agencies on Wall Street, which tells us a lot about the rest of the country, a little bit about Utah, but how does that happen? Um, we have our pensions fully funded. You know, we, we don't have uh, obligations. We, we don't spend more than we take in. We never use one-time money for ongoing obligations. So we have no structural imbalance. Um, we have rational debt. We only use debt to build things like roads, buildings on education campuses. Uh, so we're pretty fiscally prudent. And um, that helps maintain stability. We also, though, have worked on something that I know the, the mayor did when he was mayor of Provo as a state. We have found ways to become more efficient. Uh, and that means, for example, today, we've, we've got buy-in from our cabinet members, our, our, our staff, and, and we have 22,000 employees in the state of Utah running state government. But that's a smaller number you want to find a smaller number, you have to go back to the year 2001, 19 years ago, to find a smaller number of state employees. On my watch, our ratio has gone from one state employee for 122 uh, uh, residents of Utah to one in 155. So we're saving now ongoing every year over $400 million in labor. If we just had kept up with, with growth and inflation. And frankly, that's the thing that makes me a little bit frustrated with all government because government is a monopoly. It has no competition. Uh, if you're in the free market, you have to either get better to maintain your profitability or your market share, or you're gonna go out of business. Government can be good, bad, ugly, but it'll be here next year, and the year after that, and the year after that, whether they're good at spending money or not. So we've tried to, in Utah, push ourselves to say, how can we find more efficiencies? Actually set a goal. After being named the best managed state in America, we said, you know what, that's not enough. Let's see if we can find 25% more efficiency over the next three years. And we did, by actual measurement, find 27.4%. And an illustration of that efficiency and effectiveness is if you go to the DMV, which is always the mark of government incompetence, you go in on Tuesday, you come out on Thursday <laughs> at the DMV. Our average wait time in Utah at the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, is five minutes or less. So we've embraced technology, we find new processes, better ways, we're open 365, 24-7. Um, we have 1,400 of our uh, services online, you can access it at your convenience. So that's what needs to happen, innovation of how to spend the, the taxpayers' money more efficiently, more effectively. Just think what would happen if we did that in Washington, D.C., if all the states did that. The economy would improve dramatically, service would be improved, and it would be less of an obligation for uh, us as taxpayers. In Utah today, we have the lowest tax obligation now we've had in 27 years. So, Congressman, we've heard a lot about immigration from President Trump, from others in the Republican Party about the importance of merit-based immigration. The president has talked about how we need to take a look at other countries like Canada, Australia, State-based visas, you know, Canada has a version of this. Mm -hmm. Has that, is that sort of a, an important model? Is this sort of an important way going forward to get Republicans on board, you think? Well, I think one way to look at this is uh, this is uh, merit-based um, on steroids, <laughs> right? Because- Legal steroids. Legal steroids. <laughs> what's, you go back to the analogies of what's the difference between the states. If we say, well, look, we want a merit base, you know, based upon this skill set. Um, that may or may not help the governor, 
right? But but allowing him to 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 be more selective in his needs that can change not only from state to state, but year year to year, right? Within a state, and they're nimble enough to to, to do that. So I would say to to yes, absolutely to my colleagues. Look, if you like that concept, uh, I got a I got an even better answer for you than than that. Has uh, the government of Canada reached out at all to you? No, I, I need this? to check my messages, but they, they have not. <laughs> I'll, I'll put in a call okay. to them and make sure yeah. they reach out because uh, this is something that uh, um, I think they could probably learn from too because what's great about this program is how clean and simple it is. It's not like right. the immigration system, a lot of people say it's second in complexity only to the income tax. Um, and I've read some of these bills that are like 2,500 pages long. And you know, I, I only speak English, but I don't speak legalese. <laughs> and uh, what's nice about this is it's a short bill, right? Yes, and it's simple. It is very simple. You're right. It's a short bill. It's like you can put it on a post-it note. I think you can describe a, a lot of the features of this. Um, so it's probably actually a ding against it. That it's, <laughs> that my colleagues are sure to criticize it. It's got to be this thick if it's going to be good. Have, have you thought at all about, um, you know, what kind of maybe compromises you would be willing to sure. make about it to get more people on board? Well, and I do think um, um, it would be a mistake for me to walk in and say this bill's perfect, right? And and uh, as it gains momentum, I'm not going to listen to anything. I, I I think all things need to be on the table except for the core principle of giving states some flexibility. If I need to change the numbers, if it, if if we've got to go and improve more before we you know we expand it, you bet I'm uh, I'm receptive uh, to to anything that doesn't compromise the core principle of what we're trying to accomplish. And how do the numbers work exactly in there? So, so uh, it's a little bit complicated, but uh, each state is given a minimum of five thousand uh, visas, and then there's a formula based on um, population and things that that would allow that to go up. If I had a criticism of the bill, it'd be first of all that's not enough, right? That's it's it's not going to solve all those problems. But I also am confident enough in the concept that if we can get in and prove it uh, that it's working, that then then we'll be able to expand that. And that's you know at the beginning, if Utah follows it, then it can go up and up ten percent right every year, um, and that's built into the bill. That's great. So. Um if we, I think we're about ready to go to the question and answer portion um, from the audience. Uh, now that we've, I think, explained the bill, explained how it can be used, et cetera. So I think we're gonna have some uh, microphones come around. I will call on you. Um, please, uh, you know, wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so everybody can hear you in here. And if you don't mind, please announce your name and affiliation. Uh, and also, this is a libertarian think tank, uh, but I will tightly regulate the Q&A. <laughs> so please ask a question and ask it ask expeditiously. So uh, this gentleman uh, right here in the pink shirt. You Thank you very saying. much. I'm Rashad Thomas with the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations. Um, Governor Herbert. Before I start, I just wanna thank you for being such a champion on refugees. We really appreciate it. Um, your courage is very important. And Alex, you too, you're awesome, big fan. Um, my question for you, Congressman Curtis, is um, given the fact that um, the program would give states the ability to decide how many of these employment-based based visas they want to have, um, you know, we think that's a great thing and, you know, um, giving states the ability to say yes to more visas is good. Um, do you think that uh, there might be a chance that some states would say no in similar vein to the way the president's refugee order has worked where, you know, some states could say no to more refugees? Thank you yeah. very much. So one of the um, one of the things that is uh, you've got to be consistent, right, if you believe states should make these decisions. And part of that consistency is some states might make decisions you don't like, right? Some states may use their visas in a way that, that I would prefer they didn't. But if I'm consistent in saying they know best, I've gotta be willing to turn that over to them. So uh, the governor, the legislature, they're accountable to their people if they say no to this, right? And if, and, and if that's in harmony with their state, great, good for them. And, and the governor referenced 50 different incubators 
right? And I think if we use that principle more often and let the states rise to the top of that, people will start, and they already have, start self-selecting states based upon how they do with some of these issues. So as much as I like hope that, that everybody would use it and use it well, part of my part of the principle is they have their right not to. And presumably states, once they see how well it's working, if they might be reluctant at first, they can always join back, yeah. join in. I, I would suspect that the, 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 the economic sector of a state would go crazy, right? That the pressure put on the economic chambers of commerce and things like that, I would have to imagine that would be huge. And, and, and the governor's gonna be accountable, right? If he, if he decides not to do it. Yeah, imagine having to say to a sector in your state Tough. with 2.3% unemployment, Hey, sorry, this important economic sector, we're not going to allow you to grow. Yeah, I, I can tell you, I, I think we sometimes forget how powerful the market is. Uh, it, it finds a way to solve problems. I would suggest, for example, as we came out of the Great Recession, which is when I came into office at the depths of the Great Recession, and had a chance to work with President Obama, uh, we would have probably been better off if they'd done nothing. Uh, they had the stimulus packages and all kinds of things they're trying to fix. And we had the longest drawn-out recession in our country's history, slowest recovery. We would have been better off if they'd done nothing and let the market find ways to, in fact, solve the problem. People vote with their feet. That's around the world. It's not just in America. They go to this state or that state or this city or that city because they like and think they have a better opportunity to improve their lives, whatever they side is an improvement for their own lives, they decide individually or collectively with their family. Same thing is true with people around the world. They go where they think they're going to be able to have a good life. We have people that want to come to our country, and that's been that way since its inception. Not because of any guarantee, but for an opportunity to be the best they can be as they define the best. And that still works today. Next question. Um, have this gentleman right here. Uh, hi, uh, Pat Spann, is a retired government person. The, um, I'm a little curious about the um, duration of these, I assume they're work visas, and um, would they be renewable year after year? And, and uh, do you envision them being converted into green cards and uh, potential citizenship? Because I think that's the hiccup in the... Uh, yeah, the, the duration is three years and they are renewable. Uh, remember, all of this is dependent on states' compliance. And uh, so that's, that's very important. There is no path um, here in, in the bill. Uh, I, I would think that would be a delightful conversation, but I think most of you know that would kill my bill, right? And so we don't try to solve that problem with this bill. I acknowledge it's a problem. Um, and so that it, it simply ends at the visa. Right, so there's no path to a green card, there's no, no path to citizenship. It doesn't stop somebody if they have From another currently existing way to get a green card. So if they come in on this, right, uh, they start working, their employer decides to sponsor them for an employer-based green card through the existing system. Or they get married. Um, or some other way, it doesn't stop them, but it doesn't create a way. Correct. Next question. Uh, yes, this gentleman um, right back here. Thanks. Uh, Adrian Chogel, retired acad academic. Uh, Congressman, would you permit states to trade visas? In other words, one state says no, and the other one, and Utah says we'd like it. There is, is it? A, yeah, a great idea because, uh, for instance, we may have summer needs and Colorado might have winter needs. There is a provision for states to work together on joint agreements. Um, so it's not so much trading, uh, but there is, there is a provision to allow some of that to happen in the bill. Yeah, and one of the ways that a lot of folks have talked about it is, let's say, you know, Utah, Arizona, Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, for instance, different growing seasons, yeah. different latitude. Agricultural workers can move freely between them if the states agree. Is like just one example uh, of that. So you know, conceivably, um, the states could all work together, sign compacts with each other, and allow 
basically the movement of these state-based workers um, between the states, um, conceivably. So it's a pretty, I mean, if you're thinking about federalism, giving power to the states, um, this really does it for this, I think more than any other immigration proposal I've ever come across. Yeah, so your institute can't officially endorse the bill, but I'm loving all of this, right? <laughs> I'm just educating people about the, uh, the, the costs and benefits of this uh, piece of legislation. Uh, next question. Uh, yes, right here. Hi, I'm Don. Uh, okay, Erin uh, Babich. Uh, I'm an intern at the Cato Institute, and um, I uh, also worked in the ski industry in California, so I empathize with Utah's pipe. Um, so I was wondering, are there country of birth caps or restrictions on these uh, visas like there are with other employment visas? Um. So if you notice little head nod, I just looked over at Rebecca and I, I, I got to give Rebecca a shout out. Uh, Rebecca, raise your hand. And Allie, uh, they're here from my staff. Rebecca's done just a, a, a tremendous amount of work on that. And my answer was going to be no, but I just kind of looked over here to confirm and she did one of these like, no. <laughs> no. As a matter of fact, um, I've, I've been an original sponsor on the bill that, to reduce the caps right overall on, on visas and uh, would like to see us move away from that. Next question. Yes, sir, right here in the back. Hi, Dwayne Russell with the National Roofing Contractors Association. I just flew in last evening from our annual convention and trade show with the entire roofing industry in Dallas. And I can tell you by far the lack of uh, workers, the workforce shortages that we've been experiencing for many years but have been, become severely acute in recent years is by far our number one issue. So I want to commend you both on your leadership on this. Uh, we have been focused, um, your uh, Congressman, your uh, colleague Lloyd Smucker from Pennsylvania has a um, legislation that would provide for workforce visas on more of a federal basis and we've been supportive of that concept, uh, but we are certainly very interested in looking at this and we think it's a great idea and, and look forward to working with you on it. Thank you. I I wouldn't pin you down to a number, but I think we can all imagine what this shortage has done to the cost of home construction, remodeling, repairs um, in a substantial way. Yeah. Wait for the microphone. Sorry, let's get the microphone back. Yeah. yeah. We estimate at least $15 billion annually from the roofing industry alone are being left on the table because there's not enough workers to fill demand, at least. Another, uh, yes, right here, this gentleman. Uh, good morning, my name is Adam Center. I work for the Department of State, but full disclosure, I'm currently detailed outside of the department, not here in the capacity to, to advocate for the department. That being said, could you detail, Congressman, what interaction you've had with the State Department about your proposal and initial reactions from the State Department? It's been forwarded to the administration and we don't have a, a reaction back yet. Um, I'd like to be optimistic uh, that they would support it. Uh, I think it is in harmony with the main principles of the administration and uh, we're hoping we'll get support. Do you, um, this might be a good opportunity to talk for a minute or two, I guess, about how it would work, right? So states would select the workers and then the feds would through the or how, so how, the, I think the beginning is the states must apply to be an eligible state. And um, the, so we, we want them to kind of show us how they're going to do it. And there's some boxes that they need to check. Once they're approved, then um, the, the federal government does all of the background checks. We stay, you know, this, this line that the, the governor mentioned between this really being a federal responsibility, we don't advocate any of that uh, responsibility away. We still take that responsibility. We just gain a partner uh, and somebody that can help us and help us in a way that's beneficial to them. So the process is uh, all along the federal government's involved, approving these, and, and the states then have to report back to the federal government. I mentioned this 97% compliance that's required uh, from the states back to the federal government. And so hopefully um, we've done a good job of creating a system that keeps the federal government in control of this, doesn't overburden the states. I, I'd hate to have a governor say no, simply because we made it too hard to do the program. Right, and uh, so hopefully we haven't made it too hard and we walk this fine line between 
federal government being in charge, states becoming our partner. Next questions. So have you got any specific reaction from the Trump administration? We have not. Um, they've been a little busy. Uh, <laughs> and so... Um, <laughs> For posterity, by the way, this is early February 2020. <laughs> um, if you... Um, if you look at kind of the, the, the way bills progress, um, I think some of the, some of the sometimes you all have seen this uh, bills are thrown in, but the legislator has no intent of ever passing that bill, and and so you give little regard to your co-sponsors, you give little regard to momentum and things like that. We've been very careful on this bill um, to to be methodical and to be careful to 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 be. Um, slow enough that we're doing it right. R right now, probably the most critical step for us is a is a Democratic co-sponsor that brings credibility and bipartisanship to this bill. So we're, we'll move quicker once that happens and to get additional co-sponsors, but that's kind of mission number one right now. I'd just like to make two observations that have come to me sitting here listening. Um, one is, I think we need to have good data. Uh, Peter mentioned the Cato Institute, and so much of immigration and too much of probably a lot of policy decisions are made based on emotion, political rhetoric, how do I get elected, as opposed to what are the facts? There's a book written not too long ago called Factfulness that talks about here's what we assume and believe to be true, and here's what the data tells us different. And so, on this debate, uh, again, having the Cato Institute and others say, here are the facts, here's the data, this is the truth. Now make your decision as opposed to just raw emotion, which maybe is lacking in facts. That's the first thing, we need to have better data. Uh, secondly, uh, one of the things that, that we are all facing in this country, whether we realize it or not, is a declining birth rate. Utah has always been at the top of the list. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, I have six children myself, three boys and three girls. I've taken the pledge. I'm not having any more. Uh, but, uh, but our birth rate now in Utah has declined to the point for the first time in our history, if the trend continues, we are not birthing at a replacement rate. Replacement rate is 2.1 per woman. We're at 2.03 for the first time in Utah's history. Well, we're kind of catching up where the rest of the country's at, this declining birth rate. If you have a declining population, you have some unique challenges on having a healthy economy and a quality of life. The Either we have more children or we have a better immigration prop, uh, situation, which allows people to come to our country. So for our future success economically, for quality of life issues, at least maintaining what we have is probably going to be an important aspect of discussion and unless we're going to raise our birth rate, which I don't see that happening, by the way, at least that's not what the statistics show us, then immigration really is something that we need to, in fact, deal with for our own well-being as a country. Yeah, a Cato scholar before my time named Julian Simon uh, wrote that, you know, people are the most valuable resource. They are not just mouths to feed, they're not just consumers, but they are workers, they are entrepreneurs, they are innovators, they are creators. And I think um, wrapping it up on that note, I think is a perfect way to look at both, I think the philosophy that you've used while governing the state of Utah, and I think the philosophy that is animating um, this legislation, hopefully uh, other pieces of it in the future. Um, so if you don't mind, if you all uh, will join me for a round of applause. Thank <laughs> you.